Hello, and welcome to the Future Christian Podcast, your source for insights and ideas into what it means to live as a follower of Jesus in the 21st century. At the Future Christian Podcast, we talk to pastors, authors, and other faith leaders for helpful advice and practical wisdom to help you and your community of faith walk boldly into the future. Here's your host, Lauren Richmond Jr. Welcome to the Future Christian Podcast. My name is Lauren Richmond Jr. Today I'm welcoming Reverend Dr. Anna Hall to the show. She is an ordained Baptist minister who has coordinated programs and conducted research in churches, nonprofits, and universities. In her work as Director of Research and Development for the Conversants, she draws on the latest research from across the fields of religious practice, organizational development, and adult learning to inform product development and implementation that supports the needs of pastors and churches. She holds a Master of Divinity from Candler School of Theology, Emory University, a Master of Public Administration from Valdosta State University, and a PhD from the University of Georgia, where she her research focused on congregations experiencing a change in pastors. So let's welcome Anna to the show. What else would you like our listeners to know about you? Well, I could certainly talk a hundred years about a long and winding road that got me to here. But I think one of the most important things to know in understanding my work is that I actually left Christianity for a season as a young adult, and I came back in from the outside. I found Jesus again in a Unitarian Universalist church in South Georgia, where I preach occasionally still. And I am just in such a debt to the thinkers and speakers that found me at that time. And it was people who are no longer with us, like John Shelby Spong and Marcus Borg, and then people who are still writing and thinking, like Brian McLaren and Barbara Brown Taylor. And that that finding informs the work I do through Convergence. I want to make sure that local progressive congregations are strong enough and healthy enough to have people find them, and also to spread sort of the gospel of the deepness and wideness of God into the world through our bigger events and conferences and things. So that's me. Who was it? Is it John Shelby Spong who just passed recently? He did. He did just very recently. And uh, I was fortunate enough to get to hear him speak in person back in the day, uh, as well as Marcus Borg and some of these others through some wonderful progressive Christian organizations here in the South. So so thankful for that journey. Yeah, I I was able to hear Marcus Borg speak once live, and I really credit his book, Heart of Christianity, I think, for saving my faith. That's a great book, absolutely. Um, speaking of, you know, you've you've touched on it a little bit. Share about your, if you're willing to share more about your journey of faith. Yeah, so I grew up United Methodist in the South in a small town at the First Methodist Church, uh, where we heard a lot about love and not a lot that I would say was sub- substantive beyond that. The pastors there had a tough job to do. Um, it, it was sort of the moderate church in town, and a lot of influential people went there. And so making people mad was not the order of the day. So it wasn't a very prophetic experience, but I certainly felt very loved, and I wasn't exposed to any sort of hateful or toxic Christianity, I would say. And I was very involved. I was president of my youth group, and I went to church camp every summer, and I just loved reading about Christianity and the history in particular and and theology. And then 
to continue being president of my youth group, I was strongly encouraged to confirm into the church, which I did, but it became clear in that experience that that was not my spiritual home. Uh, the creed that they used was not my creed. And, uh, and through that experience, I went into college as a philosophy major and spent many years exploring non-Christian philosophy and spiritual paths. And then again, I found my way back into Christianity at the local Unitarian Universalist Church in Valdosta, Georgia, where we explored all paths. And I realized that Jesus was my teacher. And I fell in love with Jesus all over again, to use a term from, uh, from Marcus Borg. I, I found my way there. And then I was called to seminary. Uh, I felt called into leadership. I had already done a master's of public administration. So I was already engaged in nonprofit organizational development work. And I wanted to do that work with churches and specifically multiple churches. And so it was really fortunate that I found Convergence and they found me because now I am so lucky to be able to work with churches all over this country and, and help them strengthen and improve the health of their churches. I love, uh, I love your quote there from Marcus Borg about falling in love with Jesus all over again. I know this isn't about me, but uh, I often say that like, I'm very much a universalist, but I'm very much team Jesus. <laughs> yeah, and that is where I found my church identity here in Atlanta, where I came for seminary. I found a little bitty Alliance of Baptists, which is a very progressive Baptist denomination or association, and they were universal in their approach to life, but they loved Jesus and talked about Jesus a lot. And I worked there for eight years as a pastor of spiritual formation, and then I moved on to be just a member of a church now that I consult, and it's a similar group. Just, we love to talk about Jesus, think about Jesus, but we also just really respect and honor the diversity in our world and how people find so many paths to faith and to spiritual journey. Um, what is a spiritual practice that has been meaningful? So, uh, you know, I am often terrible about practicing what I preach. I talk a lot in my work on change about the need for reflection and practice. And I try to meditate and not as regularly as I would like. Um, I have a busy brain, so I tend to do audio guided meditations, um, either on YouTube or on some podcasts. But the one I do probably daily that I don't, it sort of sneaks up on me, is the use of story to sort of make meaning out of life and faith. And the way I do that is I am a huge fan of sci-fi and fantasy, TV, books, other media. And I've recently gotten into comics even. I find so much richness for reflection in this infinite variety of hero and heroine journeys and, and what they reflect about our world and how we face change. And I have friends that do the same, and we're all kind of churchy and seminary people. So we have these incredibly rich conversations about that. And that practice probably informs my life more than any other. And I would recommend it, actually. If someone is seeking a practice right now, I would say go watch WandaVision for a meditation on grief. Go watch Loki and think about shifting from self-orientation and narcissism toward connection and orientation toward others. And if you're not into sci-fi, I would recommend watching Ted Lasso 
to think about the power of kindness and connection in handling tough situations and growing from them. And if you've seen the last episode most recently, to think about what happens when our woundedness sort of turns that kindness and connection into dysfunctional behavior because it, it definitely can. I mean, there's just deep stuff right now in our society's storytelling, and I am there for it. Yeah, I, I'm afraid, like, I don't have HBO because uh, I need to be budget conscious right now, so I'm really missing uh, out on this Ted Lasso thing. So I guess I'll have to just enjoy it when it's on some other streaming channel, I guess. Oh, I'm sure it'll come around. I think even Outlander ended up on Netflix. So I think it'll all come around from the pay cable to to the regular. Yeah. Well, we're here today to talk about a book that I really am excited about uh, talking to Anna about. It's called her book, Church After. And it's really intriguing title. So the full title is Finding Transformation in Unexpected Change. And boy, oh boy, we have all been, if you're listening to this, uh, through some unexpected change in the last two years, 18 months, whatever we want to call it. So uh, talk about what inspired the book, what prompted the book, that kind of thing. So this book was a long time in the making. Um, In my younger years of both uh, just being a member of a church and then later in leadership at a church, I actually ended up walking with pretty much every church I was ever a part of through some sort of unexpected transition, typically pastoral transitions that were very unexpected. Um, And so both as a member, a lay leader, and a minister, I noticed that these changes changed us as a congregation, often in some profound ways. However, we didn't ever talk about that transformation And so we couldn't really build on it going forward in healthy ways. And so then I was a PhD student at University of Georgia studying organizational development and adult learning. And I needed a topic for my dissertation. (laughs) And my church was in the middle of yet another pastoral transition. And I said, oh, maybe this should be it. Um, I ended up studying other churches, not ones where I was involved. But um, it was just such rich territory. And what I found was, what I talk about in the book, is that in most churches, there is learning happening, but if it's not, and it's most often not facilitated or, you know, helped along in any way, it is very informal and incidental and often doesn't inform the future life of the church. So then that was done. And I was working with Convergence, and all these churches were coming to us with unexpected changes from staff and pastor transitions to um, having to move out of their building or even a a scandal or a a criminal misconduct or something like that, or just a tragic death of a primary member or leader. All of these, these pressing problems, I realized churches could benefit from this research, but it needed to be more practical. And so I knew only about seven people would probably ever read my dissertation over my entire lifetime. (laughs) So I decided to turn it into something a little more user-friendly. And then when COVID came along, I had been doodling around with it for years, but I was like, this is the time. Uh, We need it more than ever. (laughs) 100%. 100%. So uh, I had a lot of highlights in this book, so I'm just going to try to like walk through a few of the highlights uh, and get your perspectives, get you to dive a little bit more in here. So at, at one point you talk about the importance, and I, th- I guess this kind of just ties with what you just said about facilitated learning rather than just kind of haphazard or informal learning. 
Um, but talk about the importance of meaning making in change. Yeah, it is fascinating to me that story is such a key part of how we make meaning as humans. It's one of those things that's so obvious. I mean, going back to the earliest humans, and obviously they were telling stories on caves, in paintings, in rock carvings. This is a part of us from our earliest days, and they form us. The stories we tell don't just make meaning of our experience. They change the way we experience it. So um, psychology research has shown that, for example, if we tell a story of change where change is a worst-case scenario or a burden, that's how we experience it. And if we tell a story of change as a journey, a quest, a discovery of wisdom, it, it changes and we experience it in that way. It doesn't mean it's not hard. It may still be hard, but it's a different way of traveling through it. And I've seen it. I've definitely seen the way people approach change in their story of how it is going shape the way they experience it. And I feel like Christians, we're a people of the book. So we're a people of story. And if we're given space for, for like facilitation at, and, and time to do this work, I think we may be pre-prompt for it already. Like the challenge with meaning making is we have to first go inside and name our current frame of reference in order to shift that frame of reference. So we have to go inside and like surface the story we're currently telling to it transform the story we're telling. But Christianity has such brilliant stories in the Bible of change or in just the history of Christianity that we can draw on for that sort of internal work. I, I think of, can we see ourselves as Ruth or as Jonah or as a Christian abolitionist, a civil rights movement leader, um, a South and Central American liberation theologian, like how they navigated through times of great change and and then how can we revisit those stories again and again to see the parallels with our own story and begin to see change as part of God's story and not just something that happens to us and that is a burden or is a um, worst case scenario, that it can be a gift. I'm so intrigued by this conversation around story because I think this is something I keep hearing again and again with folks I talk to and I think is so important for could be helpful for where the mainline church is at right now uh, of sharing story. And I don't know if you've, you've come across Dwight Shiley. Uh, he's at Luther, at least last I knew was. Um, he was one I had back a few seasons ago who really emphasized the importance of sharing story. I've had it uh, even with uh, Becca Ehrlich, who I talked to just yesterday, and she'll probably air in the same season as you was one who really emphasized story. And I, I don't know about you, but I think like story has such a powerful way of uh, building community and bringing transformation. Absolutely. I would just encourage, and I, I imagine you'd agree with this, like in a mainline church, like find ways to encourage people to share their story uh, with others in community, whatever. Yeah, absolutely. One of our programs that we help churches walk through in times of visioning um, or change, but in particular when they are saying, we are here, 
where do we need to go? Like, what, where is that North Star for us? It's called Revision, um, and, and it's sort of been designed along the way by Cameron, our CEO, and then me and Greg Carlson work with it primarily. I've developed a lot of the materials. And one of the main components of it are two pieces of storytelling. One is writing a eulogy for your favorite program of the church. Oh, wow. Write it now. Tell that story. Celebrate it. We may not say goodbye to it right now, but let's go ahead and and notice it the way we would somebody we've lost. We didn't be decent at doing it for funerals, but we aren't great at doing it for things like programs and roles and even buildings that we need to let go of a bit through storytelling. And then the second piece is a session on testimony. We find the mainline church has not been great about this. And part of that is, as, as you probably know from your background, there is a lot of baggage around the use of testimony as to prove you should belong in church history. And I'm not suggesting in any way a return to that. But what we have failed to do is share those stories of when God was inbreaking in our lives. And those stories then help us make sense of ourselves, of each other, and of the collective body that we're calling this church. And, and so we, we, we sort of teach it. We teach churches how to do that in a session. And there's a great book we recommend, Molly Basquette, Standing Naked Before God. And her church took this on as a whole church spiritual practice. And it is just brilliant to see what it did for that congregation. Speaking of, she's one I've been trying to think about getting on. So uh, if you have a connection, we'll have to talk after the fact. Yeah, she's great. She's done some courses for us. Amazing, amazing minister and thinker and writer. Yeah. Um, I'm, I love this idea of writing a eulogy for your favorite program at the church because uh, I don't know if this is part of the intent, but I think at minimum you're training people at least subliminally to realize like, this isn't doesn't need or won't necessarily last forever, and it can have an end. Yeah, it's so important. I think so. One of the things I think churches should be able to do well, but often do poorly, is in this rhythm of navigating change. I recommend the rhythm sort of of ritual and reflection and celebration. Like these these rhythms shape us. And ritual, we should be good at. <laughs> we're churches. We should be good at this, but we're really not good at ritualizing change. And a eulogy is a really significant way that we all know how to mark the possible loss of someone. I think of the New York Times, where when somebody is fairly important, they have a file. They're ready. Yeah. Like, they're ready. How can we be ready to say goodbye to things we may need to say goodbye to? Because there won't be room for the new things that God is doing if we're never willing to say goodbye to any of the old. Oh, that's good. That's good right there. Um, Okay, let's get back on track because there's so much good (laughs) stuff to talk about here that I want to make sure we can squeeze some of it in at least. Um, On page 30, you talk about what must intentionally come during transitions and you have like some bullet points here. So I don't know if, uh, if you have those memorized or I need to tease them. <laughs> no, no, I actually have a marked. I have my own bookmarked copy for, of my own book. Is that obnoxious? But I totally do. Um, yeah, I think, so it goes back to that rhythm I'm talking about. So when we talk about what we, if we want to be intentional, if we want to be thoughtful about change in our churches, the rhythms that are shown by research to help with that work individually, and I believe also organizationally, are that piece where you acknowledge and celebrate what has come before. 
a change is a grief, even a good change. We can't leave that out. And again, churches should be good at this part, but we often forget this part. So even if it's a change, we may only talk about the new thing that's coming. And we haven't really taken the time to mark that grieving, to throw a rock into a pool of water, to burn a piece of paper in the ash bowl, whatever it is we need to do to let that thing go and make room for the new. And then I think the the middle two work to increase member knowledge and context and create opportunities for discernment. They sort of go together and, and they are part of that going inward and not just individually, but collectively. So it sort of is like we need to know where we are to discern together where God is calling us. And sometimes that means taking a really honest look at where our church is, even those truths we're scared to name, like a shrinking congregation or a changing neighborhood or, or whatever, no money, whatever that is, like naming it into the room, honoring that that is where God has us right now. <laughs> we are here. God is here with us. And then the collective discernment space, it, it really is about creating space and time where we talk together about what is God doing in us individually? What is God doing in our congregation? We often encourage conversations like sharing each member's passions and interests and callings, and then seeing where that weaves together in sort of the larger calling of the church. So that sort of collective listening and discernment. And then finally, we sort of get back around to ritual again, because when that new direction emerges, then we want to celebrate that and call that forward. And then the fourth thing, a fifth thing I mentioned there, and this goes to sort of a systemic approach. I think we want to weave this rhythm into every system and structure of the church. I think every subgroup of the church, leadership, yes, but also every group should be building this in. So you may see the Sunday school class that stays very academic. Make sure they're doing spiritual practice. Make sure they're taking time for discernment and listening. The council, are their meetings just work or are they spiritually reflecting and discerning? And are they celebrating what they've done? Are they marking the loss of things that didn't work out? And even like the choir, as a sometimes choir member myself, choirs can be very resistant to change. Do we in choir take time to remember that choir was different 50 years ago and it will be different 50 years from now and we're a part of that journey and how do we celebrate but also discern where God might be calling our music programming as churches change in size and composition. There's no doubt those things are changing as well. So to me, building it into every part of the life of the church will then support train people in these skills and sort of leave room for it because if you don't, you'll be so busy you'll never do it. Yeah, and we'll we'll come back to that theme uh, again here later on, I think, or at least I hope. It's interesting in so much of what you're saying, I hear this kind of subliminal message, uh, latent message of knowing thyself, uh, so to speak. And I'm intrigued by that. And I'm curious, like, how does knowing yourself or, or knowing who you are individually or as a community why is that so important in change? I think it's important, firstly, because it doesn't happen as often in our lives as one might hope. We're not, as people, super good at this. So we often need some facilitation to get there. And so we don't tend to come into spaces knowing 
even our own agenda, our own interests, our own ideas. And without that, there, we may miss something God is trying to say through us. So I think it's so important to bring our full and authentic selves but I also think we're really bad at it. And I think where we get at it often in our society today is through studying an exemplar, like maybe listening to Brene Brown on a TED Talk, or we sometimes get it through our yoga studio, inviting us into a guided meditation or our therapist. But I won't say that churches do a great job with this part of the work. And I think what I've seen is often a fear in churches that if they help people to know thyself, the self they may know may realize they're no longer interested in church or at least the responsibilities that they have right now. So we're not, we don't want to ask the question, what is your passion? If your passion is animal rescue and we have you on 14 councils about the pews and the flowers and this, we're not really helping you live your passion. And once we start asking that, then we have to start asking, what is our collective calling together? Are these pews our collective calling if nobody in this building is called to maintain them? And it gets into some really complicated stuff. I do think, though, it's a sacred duty of churches, because I think in listening to our deepest selves, we also can hear God in there. And so when we abdicate it, we have sort of left God out of the conversation in a lot of important ways. And so I think teaching people how to find that inner voice and listen, and a lot of that is spiritual practice, and highlighting that through their testimony, inviting them to speak about what they're discovering about themselves, not only in formal ways, but to genuinely ask all of our members and volunteers, are you called to this work anymore? What, what can we do to support your calling? And then finally, you know, making room for that calling to change the operations of the church. Because again, if nobody in your building is interested in this thing anymore or called to it, why are you doing it? God isn't calling this group of people to do that right now. <laughs> There's just this kind of like, I don't know what even what the word is, energy or assumption. Like, oh, we have to, if it's the pews, like we, someone has to care about the pews. Someone has to be in charge of the pews or whatever the thing is. And like you say, if there's not space to talk about it, um, this is, again, I'm going to go off script here a little bit, but this is the thing that as we're recording this, it's the fall of 2021. And while we're, I don't know what's happening with COVID. Let's be honest. I have no idea. Yeah. No one knows what's going to happen. All the predictions have just whatever, unless perhaps you're an epidemiologist, uh, but whatever. Uh, we're not, that is at least. So. Saying that we really don't know what's going to come, I I, I kind of lament that I feel like after all this talk about change and status quo, like that there really has not been that much change in the structure and organization and even worship style. And I wonder, like, this is really a practical question, I suppose, after all that philosophical uh, rumbling, ramblings, but I'm like, what needs to change with maybe since the Sunday morning gathering seems to be the most uh, most popular or most reasonable time to get people together? Like, what needs to change about Sunday morning gatherings to a provide more people time to listen and uh, know thyself? Yeah, I mean, I think that's a great question, and I think each church's answer should be different and will be different. I think the challenge is uh, broadening our imagination enough to ask that question um, and, frankly, discuss it. 
so one challenge we're seeing with churches right now is they are trying to bring, as they reopen, all of their 2019 activities back on top of the new hybrid slash virtual additions to worship and fellowship. It is not sustainable in any way, shape, or form for the churches we the majority of churches in the United States, which are less than, you know, 200 people, they're, they're not big. They don't have a big staff. And even if they did, I don't think that's the right answer. Because again, church should not be about a list of activities or pet projects or preferences. The essential question should be, how are we developing these people on their spiritual journey? And then how are we all developing together to do the work of God that God's calling us to do? But the challenge is sometimes you have to stop everything to listen enough to ask that question. And we occasionally we share this example of this one church that was really struggling, shrinking, and they stopped for a year. They stopped worshiping for a year. They didn't stop worshiping in person like we did during the pandemic, only to add 70 hours of digital work to our minister's load. They literally stopped. They told everybody to go to neighboring churches, and they gathered once a week for some fellowship. Hmm. And they, out of that, were able to revision or envision sort of a future that could be freed of constraints of what we've always done before. And they stopped everything else, too. Like, they stopped choir. They stopped everything. And they just met together once a week to fellowship. And then they did some intentional discernment work toward the end of that year. I know every church can't do that. But I think the key question would be to do as well as you can to ask the fundamental question of, for this worship gathering we do every week, what is our purpose? Like, what is our formation goal? Almost like you would ask if you were writing a course curriculum. What what do we want people to come away from this worship service with? Is it information? Is it insight? Is it a, a practice they can use at home? What is it? Is it stories that they need to accompanying them on their journey? And then design out of that space. And what that might mean, too, is crowdsourcing how to do that work. That's where you ask what people's passions are. And and if somebody loves to paint, could they paint the story? Don't ask them to do another reading. (laughs) (laughs) You know, and if somebody loves to, um, I don't know, do drama or loves to meditate and can teach the rest of the group. It's sort of like meeting your people, where they are, and talking about what we all can do together. There's that together piece, not just paid staff, to get us where we want to go. But first, you have to figure out what you want people to get out of your worship service. And of course, I want them to be formed in ways that help them navigate their lives and listen to God's calling, both individually and collectively. So I have a bit of a bias toward that answer. But in other congregations, the answer could be different. But it needs to be intentional, you know, not just doing things for We've always done it, or people want us to do it, that consumer sort of orientation. None of that. Asking that fundamental question of what are we really doing here together? I'm thinking of, I'm, I'm blanking on the author's name right now. The Art of Gathering. Are you familiar with that word? Mm. Um, no, but it sounds like a wonderful title. Yeah, and it's, it's, it's not a Christian perspective, I think, if I'm remembering correctly. But the author kind of highlights that... Uh, in the 21st century, like people aren't just going to gather because that's just the thing we do. Like you're saying, it's because we're going to come together for this or that or the other. Yeah. I mean, in some ways, 
yoga studios have figured this out where we have not. Um, that people come together for practice, to do something together that improves their lives. And again, some might say, well, that's just a consumer orientation. But I do think it goes beyond that because a good teacher of a practice develops a theory of teaching that practice. Why are they teaching it? How are they teaching it? And and what creates community in the teaching of it? And in your best situations, you're not just buying a yoga class. You're buying into a community of practice and supporting the teacher of that, which isn't that how we would sort of want church and pastors to look? Well, I love it. Yeah, 100%. Um, oh, we don't have time. We don't have time to talk. <laughs> um, well, here... Like I said, we're kind of running through time, um, and I want to respect your time. Let's talk about, in Chapter 11, I think it's Chapter 11, you have a, a section on cultivating change readiness, uh, and there's three indicators you you reference to measure change readiness. Yes, and I love this framework, and I'm playing in that space constantly right now. So I'm currently working on a series of white papers on change readiness for convergence, and this research project grew out of our interest in building more on this into our vital church assessment, where we help churches do that work I was talking about, about knowing where they are right now, because it is important. Where are you right now? Who are your people? What's up? And I think it's important to know where our people are in terms of change skills and where our systems and structures are. And so the three indicators are commitment and capacity and culture. But what keeps coming up as I do this research and I talk to faith leaders and business leaders and other consultants, they're so intertwined. So when you talk about commitment and capacity, those are also parts of the culture of the organization and vice versa. Like the it's, it's just interwoven. And so w- what we are seeing is that the underlying foundation of all of this is trust. Trust isn't just one component, particularly in churches. Um, trust is where you trust that the change is needed. There's that commitment piece. You trust that it's important to move forward instead of backwards. There's that commitment piece. You trust in the gifts and the wisdom of the people that's sort of the capacity piece. You trust that if you lay some things down to make room for new things, that God has you. That's, again, the capacity. And then, of course, trust is all throughout culture, which is where do you literally relationally trust each other, not to wound each other, not to never wound each other, but you trust each other to have the community and each other's best interests at heart, that you are not going to wound each other in service of your personal agenda over the good of the community. And so without trust, you can't even have that shared mission because you have 40 separate agendas going on. Without trust in each other, you can't make decisions in healthy ways because you think everybody is up to something. And without trust, there's no cohesion. You can't sort of come together as a whole. And it's interesting because why I think it's especially in churches, I mean, a business person may differ with me on this. But churches, people can just leave or act out if they don't like it. Like, you can't, and and if they do anything, if they do the acting out piece where they stay, you can't fire them. I mean, you you shouldn't want to fire them because we're a church, right? We're a community. And in that way, I think it's, church can be a unique testing ground for this theory on change readiness because it we can model a more human-oriented approach than a typical business approach to change readiness. I mean, quite honestly, if you work for Coca-Cola and you don't eventually get on board, you're going to be gone. I mean, it's not going to be great for you. 
with the church, if we believe that we are called to shepherd and steward this community as a whole, we don't want any lost sheep. We want to know where you are in terms of your change readiness personally. And we want to help you build those skills and recognize you may not come to us with those skills. And like, how do we build that together? How do we occasionally maybe refer out for therapy? But how do we build those together so that we're still a community that can navigate this change together, not a get on board or you're out kind of culture? So I think it's a really exciting space to talk about change readiness right now. And I'm thrilled to be doing this work. I look forward to how it's going to emerge. Hopefully those white papers, the first I think will be out maybe toward the end of the month. And that is focusing on trust in particular. Okay. Okay, so listeners, if you're listening to this, go to Convergence website because there should be uh, there should be a few of them out by the time this airs. Yeah, we have a research section, convergenceus.org, and it has all the research we do and are doing uh, in all sorts of things, especially churches and change. So I'm thinking about, I don't know if you've been listening, uh, probably better for your mental and emotional health if you haven't been, uh, but the rise and fall of Mars Hill podcast is this, the story of Mars Hill or, or Mark Driscoll in the bus, if you remember that thing. And he was very like enthusiastic about like running people over and throwing people. Yes, that's some problematic language that came over from organizational development. Yeah, I have followed it. I haven't listened to every episode, but certainly followed all the journalism about Mars Hill over the years. I, I think we are shifting, hopefully, <laughs> from that idea of a charismatic leader being a church CEO in the sense that they say, get on the bus or take off. Uh, I, when I first came into church consulting, there was definitely still that attitude around. Uh, and, and honestly, it slid down into the mainline and progressive strands of church consulting from the big steeple megachurches. I think I'm optimistic that we have all learned a lot about unquestioning allegiance to leaders over the past few years. So I think it's a, a time that is rich for the opportunity to build on that and say, look, when we don't stay transparent, when we don't build in open conversations about change and healthy disagreement, look what can happen behind the scenes. It can harm us and harm each other. The other half of that question is I'm curious, like, uh, again, I wouldn't say like we need to be enthusiastic or 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 anxious about tossing people off the bus. This is a terrible metaphor that we're going with. But is there ever a time where, the, whether it's the leadership of the church, the pastor, the council, whatever, uh, what would you say like if there's a person who's just not interested in change and just causing uh, disruption? and sabotage. Yeah, I mean, it's such a tough dilemma we face with so many of our churches. Unfortunately, a couple bad actors can really can really mess things up. And I don't want to call them bad. The actions are bad. But um, I mean, the actions can be directly harmful and can involve deceit and other things. I, I think what we see is that when we're working with a church on change, the pastor actually needs to spend more time on pastoral care than you can imagine. <laughs> And again, that, that points to the streamlining. What can we streamline to make room for this? Because we talked about people will come with different skills and levels of change. And some people may need extra literal pastoral care to go through the grief and emotions of change. Other people may need boundary setting information. Um, 
other people may need, again, referral out to, to a therapist. And then occasionally, if someone is truly harmful to the gathered body, hard pastoral conversations may have to occur about helping that person find a faith community that is more suited to them. I would never, again, never with the lost sheep. I mean, it'll just get out. Like, But it, it, it requires less of that charismatic leader work than you would imagine and more of the pastoral care because the pastoral care is what builds the trust. And, and honestly, pushing up against someone who is really struggling with change and acting out, the harder you push, the harder they're going to act out. The pastoral care piece, and if the pastor's not the one to do it, finding who can do that. Often it turns into sort of a binary conflict between pastor and person and, and parishioner. And, and it may be that somebody else comes in, an outside consultant, an outside counselor, but it really is attending to knowing where everybody's at right now in terms of their skills with change, beginning to build those skills, and then observing who needs extra help. Sort of like, you know, you add in an extra teacher sometimes into the class to help, or you have some special tutoring or meetings if you're thinking about school. I think spiritual formation can be the same way. We don't all get there at the same speed, but I think we can all get there. Yeah. I appreciate what you said there about just kind of the additional importance of pastoral care. Cause like you've said, all change is loss and loss needs to be grieved. And some people just may need to grieve more than others. And that might be, um, why they're throwing a fit. Now uh, I'll say perhaps from a little, little cynical side, I think there's some people who just want to cause trouble. But they want to cause trouble. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, we, we do work with churches on conflict transformation skills. And in those, we talk about different conflict styles and personality types. And there are certainly people who would have more of a personality type to want to stir stuff up. However, you can redirect that. I mean, every person has gifts to bring. So perhaps they love to stir stuff up. Well, maybe God gave them that gift and maybe they're the ones you need out picketing the racist organization down the street. Put them out there doing that. That's where we need to stir some stuff up. You know, if the only place they have to offer that is in a council meeting, that's not going to be great. Uh, I'm running over here almost. Um, I thought this was important. Talk about the importance of systems and structures in change. I think what we see, in addition to making sure that all of these subgroups are trained in sort of this rhythm of ritual and reflection and, and self-examination and discernment together, that's a piece. But then there's also a bureaucratic piece in many churches that, that literally blocks change. So when you look at change readiness, you actually do examine what structures are keeping you from change and from fast change. Not that change should be fast for the sake of being fast, but if everything has to go through five years of committees, we're going to have some issues. So one thing as a consultant, we find, I find myself asking, and I just worked with a church recently. We did three sort of collective coaching sessions with a council. I asked, what's stopping you? Because they sort of knew what they needed to do. They knew the change. And out of that question, we found out that it was this piece. We needed to modify our bylaws. And, and one thing we did at my personal church a few years ago, and again, I was on council at the time, and it worked well, so I'll own it. We suspended every bylaw that didn't have to do with money, personnel, or safety for two years. 
Everything just went to council for a vote if it was pressing. It was sort of like suspending activities, but we suspended bureaucracy. So we did not have, like, every committee have to put something in writing to do this or that or the other. If a committee had an idea and it didn't cost any money, go do it. Sounds awesome. If a committee needed some money, come to the council. We'll give you some money probably. But, like, we just suspended the bureaucracy. And out of that, we came with a very streamlined policies and procedures. And so sometimes... If it's going to take too long to change the policies and procedures in time to navigate the change, suspend them. Suspend what you can legally, you know, with your fiduciary duty. Don't suspend the money stuff. But suspend what you can to make room because you probably don't need something in triplicate to change where the altar sits. You probably don't need seven committee meetings to change whether you combine the first and second grade classes in Sunday school. You probably don't. And so really just freeing yourself and say, what's stopping us? And then say, is this a safety issue? Is this a money issue? Is this a personnel issue? If it's not, let's just try it. We can always stop. And so it's that piece. It's freeing the systems for, to make room for change and reflection and experimentation and not five years of committee meetings. Yeah, because I think there's nothing more discouraging than to someone who's like new at a church and is excited to get involved, just to be told like, oh, we'd love to you to, to get involved in this community and then talk about it for for seven months or a year, like, I, I, like that just. Uh, oh yeah. Or you have to be elected to the committee at a meeting that won't be held for another nine months. So you can't even go to the meetings yet. Yeah. I mean, we're increasingly advising churches to become more agile in their structures just in general. Every committee does not need elected members. You may want to elect a chair or not. I mean, if it's somebody who's just passionate about this thing and you've vetted them, you know, let them try being chair for a while, especially if it's something that's not going to have potential for any harm, like decor or something, you know, something like that. And then let them gather the group they need to do that work. Don't make each member of that committee have to be vetted just and having these little short-term teams too. If you need to try something, just gather a short-term task force or team try it. Don't make everything go through these pages and pages of, of bureaucracy. And so it is important. And it takes that orientation toward everything that is not making us move toward mission or helping us listen to find God's calling for that mission. We can lay it down for a season. And then it goes back to trust. Can we trust that if we lay this down, that we're going to be okay? And I can say you are. You are going to be okay. You know, you can trust each other to walk through this together without 17 pages of things in triplicate. You know, we have, you haven't explicitly mentioned this, I think, but I just want to highlight it because I think it's important. That idea of like kind of the time limitations can be really helpful Ooh. for people because you've said it multiple times. You're like, oh, do it for six months or do it for three months or, you know, write a eulogy to, to just help people know like this isn't permanent. Um, I think that can maybe, I don't know, like uh, ease some, some defensiveness perhaps if they know, hey, this isn't necessarily permanent. We're just going to try it for a little while. Yeah, I think churches are, are afraid of two things. Number one, most churches do not realize that the current structure and activities of our churches are 20th century invention. They have certainly not been there since the beginning of Christianity. They have only been there for about 150 years at most. Um, so they feel like it can't be any other way. Like they can't picture it. Um, and then the other piece is sort of a fear of failure, a fear of experimentation. Okay, so let's say we try to hold a day camp for kids in our neighborhood and nobody shows up. Oh my gosh, that would be horrible. Would it? I mean, you know now, you have data, you have information, and God 
you feel like called you to do something. Maybe God was transforming you through that particular attempt and failure. I, I think we can be more experimental. And I think that often happens with shorter term projects, you know, to use a, a word from the entrepreneurial space, prototyping, to prototype something, just give it a shot. Do it as well as you can, but give it a shot before you say, we're going to do this for the next 20 years and hire somebody and, and employ them till they retire. Like that is not the way of the world today. As we've seen during the pandemic, things change on a dime. Everything may change by 2025. So really, everything may be short term. We might as well accept it. Yeah, that's good. Okay. Uh, let me ask you one more question. I promise the last question and we'll take a break. Sure. Uh, there's so much good stuff here, but what do you have? advice for pastors. We either talked about it already or when we're offline about how, man, after, who knows what the after is going to look like after this pandemic, if, it, if there ever is an after, like what advice do you have for pastors? Yeah. I mean, I've thought a lot about this certainly, and I think I have said it, but I'll say it in sort of a shorter and more concise way. I think the key is, and this is going to be hard, is that leaders have to keep things streamlined enough to make space for that rhythm of ritual, spiritual practice, and critical reflection. Again, we're seeing so many churches try to layer the 2019 levels of activity, much of which were not working, onto the virtual life that they've been called to through the pandemic. This is not going to be sustainable. You might as well not even get started on it. If I could jump in front of that bus right now, <laughs> stop, wait. What we need is to refind the space from shutdown. And that's, that's hard. It's hard. Everybody wants to get back to normal. There's this backward orientation. Um, but God is working through this time. I don't know if this is a second reformation. I don't know if this is a third grade, fourth grade awakening. I don't know what this time is. But God is doing things with us. And it's only if we take time and space that we'll be able to hear it and see it and be part of it with God and God with us. And so, yeah, I would say just put on the brakes. Just say, we don't need to start this part up yet. We need to listen more than we talk, and we need to sit in silence more than we do. And just for now, streamline it, keep it simple, and then see what God says to do. Well, this is great. Thanks so much for this conversation. Again, the book is Church After, Finding Transformation in Unexpected Change. Uh, let's take a quick break and we'll come back with some closing questions. All right, we're back with Reverend Dr. Anna Mitchell Hall. So thanks for this conversation. I've really enjoyed it. Uh, you can take these closing questions as seriously or not as you'd like to. Uh, but if you're Pope for a day, what do you want to do? What does that day look like? That kind of thing. So if I'm my imaginary version of a Pope where I can tell all Christians to do something, I would tell all Christians and members of any church in each zip code to all get together in the same place, like in a park, listen to the gospel of Mark, sing a song, something everybody can agree on, Jesus loves me, eat dinner on the grounds. Just for this momentary reminder that we all share something as followers of Jesus before we go back to our corners and start arguing about doctrine and politics again. I like that idea. I like that idea. I think we'd be surprised how much space we need for everyone. And maybe that's part of the point, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And again, I think that may be more if I was a wizard than a pope. But <laughs> <laughs> um, A theologian or historical Christian figure you'd want to meet or bring back to life. 
Um, Clarence Jordan, founder of Koinonia Farm and author of the Cotton Patch Gospel. I would just love to have dinner with that guy. Awesome. Um, what do you think history will remember from this current time and place? I think the good that we will remember is that we adapted faster than we could have imagined to this time of pandemic. Even if it, we, it remains to be seen whether we have a long transformation from that, but we adapted. Um, we wanted, we, or, we are so oriented toward connection as human beings that we made it happen, like through technology. We had virtual church during lockdown. We had school. We Zoom reunioned. We Zoom uh, weddinged. <laughs> we Zoom cocktail houred. Uh, we were amazing at honoring that need for connection. And I, I think that's worth celebrating. The bad is that there is a growing disconnection and mistrust in our world, and it cost many lives. And it continues to present serious concerns for our planet and our, our people. And so that is sort of the bad that I think history will remember about the 2010s. That's good. 2020. I don't even know what you call this time. What do you hope for the future of Christianity? I think all of my work is driven by the hope that we as Christians can become a people who navigate change with faith more than fear and can show others who don't even claim a Christian allegiance how to do that. Um, because we know deep down that God is in the changes and with us through the changes and we trust that. and We rest in that. And I think that would make us to use Clarence Jordan's term, a demonstration plot of sort of this ever-evolving kingdom of God. That's good. That's good. Well, where can people find out more about you and get a copy of the, the book? Okay, so to find out information about the book or to buy the book or uh, information about how to book me to speak, you can find all of that over on canemillpress.com. That is my publishing imprint, and it also has information about other books I'll have coming out soon, and you can click on the book cover of this book to find out everything you need. And I also have a Facebook page called Change Ready Christians, where lately I've been mostly sharing about the book, but I also from time to time share articles from news and other media about change and how we walk through that. And of course, if you'd like to work with me or our team at Convergence for a vital church assessment, coaching, consulting, online learning, we're over at convergenceus.org. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for your time. I really appreciate the conversation and uh, may God's peace be with you. Thank you, and you as well. This has been beautiful. Thanks for joining us on the Future Christian Podcast. To learn more about Lauren or the podcast, visit future-christian.com. One more thing before you go. Do us a favor and subscribe to the podcast. And if you're feeling especially generous, leave a review. It really helps us get the word out to more people about the podcast. The Future Christian Podcast is a production of Torn Curtain Arts and Resonate Media. Our episodes were mixed by Danny Burton, and the production support is provided by Paul Romaglevitt. Thanks, and go in peace. Peace.